preaching is found in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We begin a short series on these two verses under the theme of devoted to God. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. So here are these two verses for our attention this afternoon. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Brethren, as we give our attention this first of a handful of sermons to this verse, we have to realize, of course, that this comes to us in the context of a previous 11 chapters in which Paul dealt with this which he summarizes as the mercies of God. And so in summarizing those 11 chapters with this expression, the mercies of God, we have this large foundation from which Paul builds this exhortation that we would present our bodies a living sacrifice and so on as earlier read. The point is that Paul is seeing that there is the building of this glorious temple, a setting apart of our bodies and our souls to the Lord that is only possible and necessarily demanded by the mercies of God. Now, why is this important beyond the fact that it's in the Scriptures? Well, one reason is our own day. Certainly every day, every generation has struggled with the balance and the workings out and the relationship between grace and law or grace and obedience and other such ways of breaking that down. But our day is even more so in a pronounced fashion because of the means by which all different views can be circulated. And whereas we live in an era where everything blasphemous is permitted and supported, it's easy to be led astray. Moreover, whereas we live in an era where these things have festered for generations and even uh, millennia, we have the renewal of each error under new dress. And so we have words that we're familiar with, antinomianism, legalism, and so on. And we think, well, those are just antiquated terms. And yet you start to listen to some who consider themselves wise and gracious, and you start to read the classic antinomians and the classic legalists, and you say, this is all the same stuff that's breaking forth today. So in our day, we have a great measure of those who consider it an expression of grace to be unconcerned about obedience. And this, as we read the Bible, becomes so concerning to us that we start to push back against that and say, well, whatever else the Bible teaches, surely it teaches that we're to obey God. But if we haven't been students of the Bible and haven't experienced the riches of His grace, we then can extend ourselves too far. It's not, of course, that we can ever extend ourselves too far in saying we ought to obey God. 
but we can extend ourselves in a wrong way by not realizing how it is we are brought to obey God. How it is that we are enabled to do the same. What motivates it and how it is that the Lord matures us to do so. And so we can get caught in this antithetical mindset of it's either grace or law. It's either obedience or grace. And in the whole of it, we're ignoring the Scripture's teachings. And so in two verses, we have the essential aspects of true gracious obedience distilled into a very simple passage. Paul is beseeching the Romans. This word beseeching is a tender exhortation. It has this notion of I'm coming alongside of you and I'm encouraging you in the way. It's a soft command and yet it's a command. It's not something that's optional. He doesn't say I beseech you to consider whether you want to or not. Do whatever you desire. It is a command and it comes with the force of a divine command. Notice the command itself is Present your bodies a living sacrifice with all of these qualifiers and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now surely if you or I have had any influence by the light of God's Word, we say this is needed in our day. The whole of the world is darkening the world around us and even the church is influenced by compromise and is starting to think in the way that the world thinks. If you talk to someone from another church and they talk to you about their worship, it's almost guaranteed that they are going to speak about the skillfulness of the guitar players and the drums and other things and the light shows and the smoke and all of these other things. And we start to say, you've got to be kidding me. Like these things are so obviously brought in from the world and so have no place in the church of God's worship, a worship which is under His authority. And yet, what can happen is such an overwhelming understanding of that that we actually become, as it were, out of balance ourselves and fail to see that the solution is not just here's what God's law says, which is right and good, just and holy, but here's the grace that is needed to motivate and enable obedience to it. Now we've talked about worship. We can talk about the Sabbath day. And so we live in a world where right now, today, there's all sorts of activity, unlawful, sinful, godless activity, that if you and I saw it as we ought, we would be disgusted at the profanity. And it hits us every once in a while, doesn't it? We'll be driving home and we'll realize, you know, churches struggle while restaurants are flourishing or parks are full, or other such things. All these things happen, you know, a couple weeks ago, or last week, there was the Super Bowl, and other occasions there will be other such activities that take place. And that strikes us as difficult, and rightly so. And it's repugnant to our instincts by grace, because the whole of this day is set apart to the Lord. We see the breakdown of family, and we say, you know what, the father needs to lead the home. And the wife needs to submit to the husband. And the children need to honor father and mother. And all of that's right. Or we start to look at individual piety and we say, you know what, we live in largely and increasingly image-central society. And so reading is dropping down. Think of this for a moment. We, the majority of us, 
find it difficult to sit with a challenging book for more than 10 minutes. To read a challenging book, I'm not talking about the nonsense the world says, you know, just get children to read and so let them read whatever. We mean challenging books, spiritual books, wholesome books. It's difficult for us to do that. And one reason is because images are front and center. Entertainment is image-driven. And so we see that and we say, here's what needs to happen. We need to read more. And that's right. We preeminently need to read the Bible more. All of that's true. But subtly what happens is leveraging against us our pushback against society, we actually overextend, or perhaps better said, we neglect to give a full perspective of what's needed to correct the error. Both a clear understanding of those things that are wrong and right need to be understood and to be embraced and acknowledged, but also the engine, the motive needs to be understood as well. Because there will never be true holiness. There will never be such well-developed, mature godliness as these two verses hold forth if we neglect to emphasize the 11 chapters preceding, all of which set forth the mercies of God. So we see profanity, and we want to push back, rightly so. But we must do so in the spirit of, and in the knowledge of, the mercies of God. We develop a sense of, I need to repent. And that's most certainly so of each of us. But to do so truly, we have to be aware of how the mercies of God work within that. And so we begin this afternoon looking at what it is to be devoted to God by considering the motivation that mercy supplies. And so Paul beseeches us by the mercies of God that we do these things. What we see is that the believer's devotion to God is motivated by and enabled by the mercies of God. That there can be no true devotion to God personally, in our families, our congregations, etc. without a well-embraced understanding of the mercies of God. Now brethren, this is not something that is isolated in this chapter, in these two verses. Of course, we've seen and we will see that this refers back. But notice, for instance, how this is the very foundation of that summary of the moral law. It's astonishing how there is a popular move among professing Christians to denounce the Ten Commandments because, well, they're commandments. We say, what's wrong with that? Because the New Testament is full of commandments. Yeah, but the commandments in the New Testament are always in context of grace and of Christ. And we say, of course they are, because that's how God's commandments to His people always have been. And so we have Exodus 20, of course. The children will know the Ten Commandments. But they should know by now, and we especially as adults should know, that before the Ten Commandments proper is the preface in which we read these words. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And then, thou shalt have no other gods before me. What's the point? The Lord contextualizes His commandments with the motive and fact of His grace. His grace is preeminent, from which then flows the argument more fully of our obedience. Now it's true, 
God doesn't need to be gracious to us to have to give us a reason to obey him. But it's also true, and we ought not to neglect this, that when he addresses his people, the grand argument and motive for it is his mercy to us. Look what I am and what I've done for you, which is necessarily teaching us that if ever we're to obey him in the way that he holds forth, we must be acquainted with his mercies. Notice Ephesians and chapter 5, when it is that Paul is exhorting the church, he says, verse 1, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. The word dear children, beloved children, those who are loved as children of God. Walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us. Brethren, we could multiply instances. We recently thought on Philippians 2, how it is we're to think about one another's, but that's found in how Christ thought of us. And here's the fact. It's the mercies of God which provide us the motive for obeying God. It is the mercy of God which enables us with the life and energy spiritually considered so to obey Him. And so we wish to start here not only because we find at the beginning of the text but also because of its importance to all of the particular aspects of obedience that are found both in these two verses as well as throughout the Scriptures. So three things for us this afternoon. Firstly, the meaning of mercies. Secondly, the provision of mercies. And thirdly, the fruit of mercies. Meaning, provision, and fruit. So what is it that Paul means when he says, by the mercies of God. So firstly then, the meaning. Well, the word itself, mercies, is a word that is related to compassion. It has to do with a compassionate kindness. The word actually, mercies, is speaking of the organs within one's uh, body. And the idea, of course, is similar to how we speak of loving something with all our heart. And we speak of that because we conceptually think my heart speeds up when I love something. And so when I'm attracted to something, I can feel my heart fluttering. Well, we also know something about what it is to be struck in our stomach. And the actual word for mercies is a word that refers to the organs of one's stomach. And so you think of when you see someone in a most miserable condition, you can actually feel, as it were, the bowels of your being moved within you. That's where this word comes from. And what happens is when you see it and you're moved by it, you, as it were, begin to move to relieve the difficulty. Here's the point that we need to understand. The word mercy has often been short-circuited to mean something like the withholding of what we deserve or the giving of what we don't deserve. Now, those things, of course, are true, but it actually misses the point. The reason that God gives to us what we don't deserve in kindness is because, to use the knowledge of this word, is that, as it were, He sees us in misery and is moved to relieve us in His kindness. That's the point of the word. It's a compassionate kindness. He relieves those who are in misery. You can see a relation of this, an idea of this, if you look at some of the instances of Christ's earthly ministry. Notice, for instance, Matthew's Gospel, 
and chapter 9. There at verse 36, Matthew 9 and verse 36. So Jesus is going about all the cities and the villages. Verse 35, He's teaching, He's preaching, He's healing sickness and every disease among them. What verse 35 is saying, this man is extremely busy. He's going about here, there, and everywhere. Now some of you, mother or father especially, will know what it is to be exhausted. Perhaps you've been busy at work. Perhaps you've been busy in the home. You've been caring for everything. And then one more person comes up and says, I've got this problem. And your instinct is almost to shut down and to say, don't bother me with it. But notice what's said of Christ. Verse 36, When He saw the multitudes, He was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. What's the point? He is busy with all sorts of activity. Good activity. Laborious activity. But He sees the miseries of the people and He's moved with compassion. And He labors then to stir up His disciples unto relieving that through prayer. But notice we have other examples. One such, Mark chapter 9 and at verse 22. Here comes the man of the child who by a demon fell on the ground, wallowed foaming, was cast into the fire, cast into the water, and what does the man say? Verse 22, Oft times it hath cast him into the fire, into the waters, to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. What's the point? Compassion and mercy sees and understands the misery of the circumstances and acts in order to help, to relieve, to answer the issue. That's what Paul is saying. By the mercies of God, by these compassionate kindnesses whereby God has seen our miseries and He has acted to relieve them. What's the point in all of this? Well, we start to see those simplistic expressions be filled out. He gives what we don't deserve. Well, in context, that's true. But here's the richness of it. He gives what we don't deserve because He's seen our misery and He wants to help. Now, that can be made simplistic, but it needs to be seen for what it is. The Lord is compassionately concerned with our miseries. Now, of course, the wonder of this is that He doesn't need to be. Because our miseries, all of them, in one way or another, are self-inflicted miseries. Whether it is from our first father Adam, or many times our own personal activity. You remember Hosea 13.9, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself. You're your own harm. You're your own problem. But He says, in me is thine help. One other thing we can say before moving on about the meaning of mercy is it's compassionate kindness. But the notion of the word implies that it's sincerely given. So the nature of the word connected to this notion of the inward movements of our bodies at the sight of miserable things. And so we see, perhaps we're going uh, in a group and we see a child 
all of a sudden panicked, a young child, and they're crying out, Mom! Mom! We would say it this way, it would be a heartless person who would ignore such cries for that, from that child. And so we're walking in a busy place and we hear a child screaming, tears flooding, Mom! Mom! What do we do? We're naturally drawn, we're moved within, sincerely wanting to help and relieve that. Now, Of course there are wicked men who would take advantage of such a circumstance. But here the word is talking about one who is sincerely moved. What a blessed truth it is that in 2 Corinthians 1.3 we have God called the Father of mercies. And that He in the Psalms is several times said to be full of compassion. What is this getting at? The mercies of God are sincere mercies of God. They are flowing from Him truly. So the meaning of mercies. Secondly, the provision of mercies. And one thing to say that's quite simple about this is that the mercies of God are from God. That's simple to say, but this is something that starts to add to the great wonder of these things. It is God who is showing mercy It is God who is compassionate toward us. They come from Him. This is important as a whole paradigm of thought. We do nothing to bring, as it were, His compassions toward us. We don't qualify for them by writing an application. So you hear about scholarships that are given to those who are uh, without certain means. And they have to write uh, an application letter. And Why is it that you should get this when there's others who are in your class of the same financial standing and they shouldn't get it? And so the person starts to write all the reasons. What he's going to do with the funds and how he's going to go about and use these things and what he would do with the education and why it is you should choose me in order to receive that scholarship. Well, here's the great wonder. These mercies that come from God come freely from God. There's not an application process by which we give our sob story or our real story and thus qualify for God. Because, to remember, these provisions of mercies which have been dealt with in the previous 11 chapters all come to undeserving sinners. So we don't have time, of course, to walk through every chapter, but most of you will have some basic outline of Romans together. If not, you can look through and read through the book of Romans later this evening. You'll have introductory material in the first chapter or two, and then it's pretty quickly into the fact of sin. Chapters 2 and 3 in particular speak much of the guilt of man, the profanity of man, the wickedness of man. But it's in chapter 3 that you have the treatment begun of justification, which runs from chapter 3, 4 through chapter 5. Justification is God's declaring a, a guilty sinner innocent and righteous. And He does this by grace through faith alone. And so in those few chapters, you have the Lord's mercy shown to a guilty sinner. What does that mean? One who has rebelled against God. One who has refused God. And yet God through Christ, who is the propitiation for our sins, whom God set forth as the propitiation for our sins. 
God comes and He answers our guilt by providing us a Savior. Now think for a moment, especially you who are believers. What application did you fill out to receive such a blessing as that? Where is it that you went to God and said, I hear that you're holding forth this provision of justification. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you why I'm worthy to receive such a provision. And of course the answer is, you haven't, if indeed you've received it. Because if we want to use that image, the only thing you can put on that is, I am unworthy. I don't deserve it. I ask that you would forgive me freely. Period. In fact, if you were to fill it out, you would fill it out with all of your miserable infractions. Just like the psalmist does. Pardon mine iniquity. Why should I pardon your iniquity? I'll tell you why, Lord. It's very great. I can't do anything about it. My misery is pronounced. And I must, if ever, to enjoy your blessings, have my misery met with your mercy. That's the only thing I can say. It's not because I'll do better than so-and-so, or I'll do better than she will do, or he has done, or she will do, and so on. But it's rather, my misery is so great, the only hope I have is your mercy, which I don't deserve. (laughs) Brethren, that's just one of the mercies of God. And it's multifaceted how it is that God brings about conviction and how God makes known Christ. And think of this, the very application of these mercies is because of the provision of the Savior. So all this is bound up. But Paul, of course, advances. And from justification, by grace alone through faith alone, he moves to sanctification. And so you have Romans 6, 7, and 8. And you have the Lord's treatment of how it is that He's provided already in Christ all that is needed for our sanctification. That is, Christ has died and we're united to Him The believer is now dead to sin, by which Paul means in Romans 6 that sin is no longer on the throne. It is no longer the master of the believer. And yet, he switches the paradigm a bit, and he says, yet the believer must battle against it. But how is he to battle against sin? Well, in Romans 8, you have it that we are to put to death the deeds of the body by what power? By what strength? Paul tells us, by the Spirit. The Spirit which has been given to you is the Spirit by whom you're to wage war against the remnants of the flesh. Who gave you the Spirit? God did. Why did He give you the Spirit? Because He was merciful. He saw your miseries and He said, I will provide you everything that you need. Now think of this historically. Christ is preparing His disciples to go. His leaving. And they're sad. Understandably sad. But he says, listen, it's good that I go because I'm going to send you another comforter, another advocate. My Spirit will be with you. And though that has particular reference in some ways to Pentecost and other such things, it also gives us insight to the Spirit's work. And it tells us why we get the Spirit. Not because we've qualified for Him. Not because we've done something to merit it but because God has already arranged in His wondrous mercies to provide us all that is needed for a life that would honor Him. Sanctification answers our corruption. But then he touches on 
preservation in Romans 8 as well. What shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? Nothing shall. There's nothing that can. Why is that? Because we've got such a strong grip upon Him? God says no. It's because He has such a strong grip upon us. And He talks about opening as we're behind the curtain. He says, you want to see why all of this is the case? And He opens up Romans 9 and says, it's because He has mercy on whom He will have mercy. He has sovereignly set His compassions upon you, unworthy you, that you might receive the fullness of all of these blessings. He uses the instruments of the preaching of the Word, Romans 10. And this purpose He has to the Gentiles is not to the exclusion of an ongoing purpose He has for the Jews, Romans 11, until finally, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. What's the point? It's that God is mercifully providing for every problem the fallen sinner has proactively. God is not the responder in the sense of He's waiting and saying, well, you know, if you do this. But He's actually the one who has organized everything sovereignly and is the one providing amply all the mercies that are needed. Are we guilty? We have the imputed righteousness of Christ. Do we have indwelling sin? We're given the Spirit who is Himself God. Do we struggle with assurance? God is not withheld from us His only Son. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Do we wonder, is this my doing? Is it going to fail because I'm weak? Paul explodes that and says all of this is by God's sovereign choice. And we see again and again the provision of mercies from God is a rich provision indeed. And go back and remember, the meaning of all of this is because God has seen us in our miseries. And out of compassion, He has come and said, I will provide to you everything that you need. And this has addressed us not as we are saved, but it has addressed us as we are sinners. And once saved, the mercies that were begun continue. This leads us then to the main vein of this text, which is the fruit of mercies. So we see what mercies mean. The compassionate kindness sincerely given of God to us in our miseries and we see indeed that these mercies are provided to us from God to answer all of our problems, all of our sins. But what's the fruit of it? Well, let's start by saying what it's not. The fruit is not joyous indifference to God's demands. We start there because that's what the current tone of many in the church is. God has been so gracious to us that we don't need to worry about obedience. Don't tell me about God's law. Don't tell me about obedience. Don't tell me about what God demands of me. Brethren, we think we understand one reason why that's the case. Frankly, it's because the doctrine of God's grace and mercy has been falsely taught by many. It is this notion of really the equivalent of man's impotent application of mercy. So it's no surprise that where an Arminian-tinged gospel pervades in our culture, 
there is closely related antinomianism. By the way, that's historically true. And so it's interesting, when Arminianism comes to the British Isles, you have the antinomianism controversy explode. These two are bound up together. They always have been, they always will be. Where it's thought that I am the one who am able to do things and much is put upon my strength of my will and the false teaching of God's grace, well then God's law likewise suffers reproach. That's one reason. But let's not pretend it's all about ignorance. It's also because the law of God, by the way, as Paul has said in this epistle, is holy, just, and good. Guess what sin is not? It's neither holy, nor is it just, nor is it good. So when the law comes and says, do this, it's not the law's fault that men resist it. It's man's fault as a sinner. That's the problem. And so where grace is falsely understood to be something far beneath what the wonder of it really is, it's no wonder then that men misrepresent obedience and law-keeping and other such things. However, we should also see this. Not only is it not that joyous indifference to God's law, neither is it something of a rigorous and bitter attempt to keep God's law. Neither of those is the fruit. So on the one side, you have those who say, well, you know, God's been so gracious, and so I don't need to care about what you're telling me. Don't come at me and tell me I need to do this. And certainly don't get particular. Because if you get particular, you're going to start addressing particular sins, and that I don't know what to do with, because fundamentally I don't know about God's grace. But neither is it, well, God is gracious, and so now I've got to do it all on my own. I've got to go and do these things. I've got to do this in my own strength, in my own wisdom, in my own ability, which shifts from God's mercies unto my merit. Both of those are not the fruit of this mercy. The first thing to notice is that the mercies bring forth the fruit of the enjoying of obedience. This isn't the only thing that are the fruit of mercies. But think of the tone that Paul is using. He comes having set forth one of the clearest teachings of God's mercies. And he's not hammering the pulpit now. He's not getting out, as it were, the hammer and starting beating senseless all of the believers. He comes and the word beseech is one of coming alongside. And he says, I beseech you by these mercies. That's the voice of one who is tender. That's the voice of one who is helping. That's the voice of one who's not going to compromise the law, but is also not going to send the believer to the law to try and figure it all out. He's keeping the believer's eyes on the mercies of God, which is the only way that there will ever be any degree of true obedience our eyes fixed upon the mercies of God. What do I mean? I mean you have to be taking in the fact of justification, 
sanctification by grace, the love of God which has provided Christ for us, the wonder that we're inseparable from His love, the foundation of this and the eternal decree which is motivated all by love. All of these things coming to us must be upheld in our soul if ever we are to enjoy the wonder of gracious obedience. So the fruit of mercies is a glad and joyous obedience. But notice, and we'll spend more time on this in the future, the fruit is the most absolute and exacting of all obedience. Because notice what Paul says. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, that's hard for us because we've never offered a real you know, animal sacrifice. But think of this for a moment. You have some animals... And you say it's time for a particular sacrifice. You select the animal and you take it to the priest. And the priest comes and inspects the animal and says, this is ceremonially clean. I can use this. And he's taking now, perhaps you've brought it with a little strand of leather, and he takes the leather from you and you hold on. And you say, well, you know, I've brought it this far. Doesn't that count? Or can I hold on to the leg of this creature? Can I keep some of it back? Because it seems a little too much for me to hand over this creature into your hands. Of course, we understand that that would be a violation of what God has demanded of the sacrificial laws and regulations. But Paul is going one step further. He says, your bodies are to be living sacrifices. You are to hand everything about your life over. Hands off. It's all yours, God. Every single thing. Well, are you really saying every single thing? Do you think a priest would have accepted the corpse of a creature from which you have extracted its vital organs? Do you think a priest would have accepted a headless creature as the sacrifice suitable for those laws that were given? Of course, the answer is no. Do you think God is here saying, well, offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice, but you know, you keep your time. You know, you keep your entertainment. You know, you keep your parts that you want to keep. Don't worry about those. And of course, the answer is no. Paul calls for the comprehensive devotion of all that we are to God. And now think for a moment how it is that our petty complaints all fail. We say things like, well, that commandment seems a little too much. So, okay, that commandment seems a little too much. How about this commandment? Present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable to God. How about this commandment? Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. All of it. Everything about you is to be fully consecrated, devoted to the Lord. And now what you'll start to see, if you can see it, is that the quibbles that the world has about particular commandments is really because fundamentally the Lord demands everything. Capture that in your mind for a moment. 
the quibbles about this commandment or that commandment. Well, do I really need to be so thoughtful about the Sabbath day? Do I really need to be so thoughtful about the way we worship? Do I really need to be so thoughtful about prayer and this and that, all of these do's and don'ts and so on? We say, well, we need to put that in context. But let's be clear. If you think the Lord doesn't demand those things, you've misunderstood what He demands. Because He demands everything. Everything is His. And then we push back and say, but wait, what about God's grace? And the answer is, no, no, you've misunderstood. It's because of God's grace that everything is His. It's because He has not withheld His only begotten Son. It is because He saw you wallowing in your filth and refuse spiritually dead and unbecoming to Him. And yet He in compassion said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to provide everything this person needs. Everything this person could ever need, both for time and eternity. And it's going to be freely given. And now listen to Paul again. I beseech you therefore, brethren, I'm coming alongside of you, brethren, and I'm saying, present your bodies. Notice that language? Present. You present your bodies to Him. You come to Him as He's disclosed all of the beauties of His mercy and grace and salvation. He said, I am yours. I'm giving you all that I have. Think of that. God has come to us and He's given everything. What if He would act like we act? Well, you know, I'm not going to give you that because that would cost a little too much. I'm not going to give you that because that would demand my son's life. And if He had thought that way, well, you and I would be still dead in our sins. But instead, He has come and given us, how can we conceive of it? He's given us the incalculable, infinitely, wondrously, gloriously, wealthy gift of His only begotten Son to answer all of our needs. All of the mercies of Romans 3-11 through are all bound up in the Gospel of His Son, Romans 1.16. All of these things are because He has not withheld His only begotten Son. And He's done it lovingly, freely, sincerely. And He comes and says, so present yourselves to Me. All that you are. And see, here's what happens. Here's what happens with Paul. Here's what happens with Christians. We say, that is a privilege. Because the One to whom I devote myself is the One who loves Me. We know of those who have marital struggles because in truth, in sincerity, there is a worry, does my spouse love me? There are issues within communication, within intimacy, and other such things. And when you start to peel away the layers through counseling, you start to discover, I really don't know. I, I don't know. And it may be a sinful I don't know. It may be a, a ground, grounded I don't know if my spouse cares for me. That there's this breakdown in the marriage. But brethren, think of this for a moment. Any breakdown in our obedience is not because we have any reason to doubt of God's love for us. He has gone and done everything to magnify how sincerely, how fully, how truly, how wondrously He loves us 
and cares for us and has answered all of our miseries through Christ His Son. So that when we get a glimpse of that, which took Paul 11 chapters to set before the Romans and through before the church, it's then that we say, this is my privilege to give myself to Him. Could you imagine? It wouldn't be a surprise in today's age. You go to a wedding and there's the groom and he says, I take you to be my lawfully wedded wife and all of those things that go on with it. And then the bride comes and says, I take you to be my lawfully wedded husband and I'll give you most of my life. I'll give you some of my time. I'll give you some of my thoughts, some of my service, some of my intimacy. Everyone in that room would be scandalized by it. Wait a second. We just heard the man say, everything is yours. All that I am is yours. And now the bride is saying, some of mine is yours? All the prenuptial agreements in the world are testimonies of this hesitation, this distrust. But brethren, what is there to distrust in God? What is there that keeps us from saying everything is yours? Gladly, willingly, delightfully. We have our argued reasons. But Romans 1-11 through summarized with this simple expression, the mercies of God dismantles every edifice of an argument that is raised against it. God is not only worthy in His absolute being and all of His superior, infinitely so glorious truths of what He is, He is worthy of it because of His matchless love for you. And when once you understand that, then it is that you'll look upon all of these commandments, all of these expectations, through the lens and in the context of this relationship of mercy. And then it is that you'll find His mercies don't just motivate me. As I go back into His mercies, they actually provide me the very things that I need in order to walk in fellowship with Christ in communion with Christ, in the happy way of obedience. As we close, brethren, we can note a number of things. One simple thing to note in our day is no degree of grace, however high, however great, in the least, removes the demand of obedience unto God. The more we understand God's grace, the more of an argument And a motive there is to abandon ourselves to full devotion to the Lord. And yet, with that, we need to say that no such obedience will ever begin or continue without an understanding and a delightful reliance upon the mercies of God. So what's our need? Our need in this is to saturate our minds and our souls with the mercies of God. Our need in this is to learn again, freshly and anew, the mercies of God of justification, sanctification, preservation, perseverance, all of these things, election, calling, and so on, all of which Paul deals with. Because these are the very things which both motivate us, support us, and enable us unto such obedience. This is but, in many ways, an introduction to this topic, which we hope to continue 
in weeks to come. But we close with this appeal. As you consider obedience, be sure to avoid the twin caricatures that obedience is either this rigorous, white-knuckled version of keeping God's law in my own strength, whether I want to or not, as well as the caricature of, well, obedience is something unchristian and out of tune with grace. In fact, the opposite of both of those is true. It's that which is motivated by grace, enabled by God's grace, and ever leads to God's grace. That in some sense, as Paul is beseeching, notice he's beseeching by the mercies of God. The arm that is put around the believer is not Paul's arm. It's God's arm of mercies. His mercies are coming alongside of us. And he's saying, here is why. The cloak we put on in order to consecrate ourselves unto the service of God is woven by the fabric of God's mercies. And so it's by His mercies, in His mercies, through His mercies that we come and gladly give ourselves to His obedience. Do you stand with me for prayer?